This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have a great show for you tonight. Uh, I'm also thrilled to hear that so many of you are tuning into the show, and we love hearing from you. So be sure to connect with us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch.net, N-E-T, for all things related to the show. And be sure to tell your friends as well. Our guest this evening is international award-winning speaker and media expert Hanadi Shahabuddin, and she's going to be joining us in just a moment. Uh, I'd like to give a big shout-out as well and a thank you to Jefferson University Hospital, Mount St. Joe Academy, and Baird Financial for their continued sponsorship and support of Women to Watch and our mission and later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Marion Ritchie of Jefferson Hospital for our weekly Health Watch. And she's going to be talking about how to prepare for doctor's visits. So be sure to stay with us and, uh, and you'll hear from Marianne later in the show. So let's invite uh, Hanadi onto the show. And uh, Hanadi, I'm so excited to have you. And I thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Well, thank you so for inviting me. I'm really excited. So I want to talk about, uh, right off the bat, I want to talk about your your early years growing up in Lebanon. And I understand you were uh, one of four siblings. Yes. So I come from Lebanon. It's a beautiful, tiny spot on the Mediterranean. And um, as uh, the country's, uh, you know, the um, population is divided into uh, 40% Muslims and 40% Christians. So I come from um, a multi-religious background that helped me do the work that I'm doing today. One of the things I read, Hanadi, was that um, your father passed away at a young age when you were only 13 years old. That must have been very difficult for you, and I wonder how that um, has affected you. It has, and um, you know, it's it's a U-turn in my life, as in every child that loses a parent. And uh, luckily, I was raised with a very strong mother that uh, nurtured us and um, did her best to grow, you know, to to raise us in a very special way, exposed to the world where we can dream big and accomplish big things. She has always uh, had our back, and um, I owe a lot of my success to her. Yes, and you know, you, you've you spoken about how um, growing up, you as a family enjoyed kind of, you know, sitting around the table and talking about religion, um, but that your mom really understood that everyone's spiritual practice has to come from within. 
and yeah. uh, elaborate on that for me. Definitely. So we we were born into a Muslim family, and my mom had always had the discussion of Islam as a religion um, in the background um, as a way to expose us to the religion, encourage us to practice it, but never ever to force it upon us or uh, shove it down our throat. So basically that gave us the chance to uh, really connect with the religion from a distance. And uh, while I was growing up, I had a lot of uh, misconceptions that some of the people now have about Islam. And early in my youth, I did not really want to commit totally, or at least I did not want to be, you know, shown to be a Muslim. I did not want to identify as a Muslim. Um, I had other things on my mind. I was traveling the world. Um, and I pursued uh, higher education in London. So, the, you know, committing to the religion was not on top of my priorities. But then things uh, started taking shape, and you know how uh, you grow into becoming a more thoughtful adult, and this is where my interest started taking, um, you know, my interest in the religion itself um, started to happen. Yes, you know, I think one of the things that I find so remarkable, remarkable, excuse me, about you and the work that you're doing is is the courage that it's taking to, you know, stand up and speak out about this topic. And so the listeners understand, you know, all of the work that you're doing, the speaking, um, uh, the workshops and the volunteer work as well, is all to try to help Americans um, change their perspective of Muslims. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was that you say Muslims are afraid too. When we talk about the fear, um, tell me about the the fear that Muslims have and do you think it's a different type of fear than Americans have? It's, it's definitely a different type of fear. Uh, you know, when you walk into a classroom and people have a specific or you walk into a meeting, and people have a specific notion of you, a very confirmed notion in their mind. And you walk into that meeting or that classroom, um, starting from a specific uh, point. Um, it's either you have to justify or deny or work with or... So, you know, it's very conflicting because the perception of Muslims is very prominent, is very uh, powerful uh, about Muslims. So people have to deal with it. They're very aware of how they are perceived and they're struggling with it. The fear comes from being misunderstood, from being judged, from being, you know, confirming some of the uh, misconceptions that people might have about Muslims, you know, um, it's very, uh, people are very conscious of it. It's in the foreground. So, the, you know, that, that marginalization um, takes shape on the whole community. And um, it reflects on, the, you know, Muslims' behavior, either as I want to identify or do not want to identify or do not want to deal with the whole thing. So different people react to it differently, but there is a collective feeling of uh, being perceived in a specific way. 
And, you know, I, I'd love to know how um, how you go about talking to your children, number one, about the work that you do. You happen to have, uh, I believe, a seven-year-old daughter and, and two twin boys. Are they five? Yes. So they're... Yeah, she's, she's now eight, and the twins are six, so they're growing fast and uh, observing everything I'm doing. Is that... Yeah. So it must be um, a balance to to tell them, uh, to teach them, um, to have them understand what you're doing, but do it in a way that doesn't uh, put fear in their minds. Well, it's a very tricky conversation I have with my kids, because on one hand, I do not want to expose everything. And my hope is that I'm going to be able to change America before they grow into adults. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which uh, happens overnight, thing, by the way. That'll happen very well, quickly. I, I really hope so. But yeah. uh, the other thing is their own experiences at school also contribute to me being very realistic about our conversations. So, so um, go, you know, nurturing their power and growing them in confidence and being confident Muslims and help them understand why Muslims do things the way they do and, and definitely give them the choice to either embrace the practice or understand it or just leave them be. Because they're just kids at this point, and they wouldn't want to force an experience on them that may scar them forever. And these incidents happen; it happens. And um, the 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 most important thing about it is to have conversations over it and uh, address it and make it a teachable moment for them and us as parents. And if, you know, do you think about when they do get older and if they came to you, Hanadi, and, and, and spoke about perhaps um, leaving the Muslim faith, uh, exploring another religion, how would you feel? I mean, as, as every parent, we came across a specific way of life that makes us feel empowered and happy from within. I do hope that they would uh, follow through with um, what we lived as parents. But I definitely also understand, just like I did when I was 17 years old, and I explored other religions, and if it wasn't for my mom's open-mindedness, I wouldn't have embraced my faith totally again. That's right. I wouldn't right. have re-embraced it. Yeah. The I... fact that... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk more about that, your, your relationship with your mother and, um, and what she taught you. We'll be right back. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. 
You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. And my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this evening by Hanadi Shahabadeen. And Hanadi is a media expert, international speaker, um, award-winning international speaker, I should mention, and also a consultant on diversity and inclusion. And just before the break, you, you were talking about really what your mother has taught you about the freedom to choose um, what your spirituality is going to be. And um, I, I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and find out in the work that you're doing how we can encourage more people to have that open-mindedness. Um, I think we start by having genuine conversation. Um, a lot of Americans are worried about being offensive or about being um, not so open to conversation. Um, I believe we start by hosting those events, nurturing the environment whereby people can ask questions, create those safe spaces. Um, and and that's, that's primarily what I try to do. I find a lot of people more open when I have a training session or a keynote. And a lot of people want to have that one-to-one conversation with me. Uh, I had one person coming after um, a conference on human resources come to me and say, and this person was a person of color as well. And she said, I had to say, I forced myself to come to your session because I had fear. Uh, you know, I was fearing Muslims. And your session clarified a lot. So I think, you know, everybody has a, a responsibility to address um, um, some of the biases that we might have towards a minority that we're not familiar with, with or that we think are very different from us. If you look at the numbers, 35% of Americans perceive Muslims negatively. You know, my question is, where are we addressing that? How are we being part of the solution in bridging the divide that America is having um, on this crossroads. Why do you think that you are the one, Hanadi, to 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 speak out and and change the perception? That, that's a very good question. Um, I believe being a Lebanese, uh, a place where multi-religious communities live side by side and have ninety percent. Uh, favorable opinions of each other gives me a very uh, powerful foundation to talk to people from different faiths. Um, I also believe that my um, media background helps me and branding background helps me be more outspoken about my faith and brand my faith the way I believe it should be branded. Um, I, 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 I do find a lot of other Muslims are, have amazing stories that are poor in the same objective as well. And I, and I do hope there's more of us because the work is a lot and there's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done. That, that's so true. I, you know, you had talked about, um, I think you're just someone that um, is very um, open to questions, curious. People have come up to you at different um, functions and events and and asked, 
all kinds of questions. I wanted to ask you first, you know, what's one of the questions you've received from someone that has surprised you the most and uh, about your, uh, your, your religion and your culture? Hmm. Um, the, the, the one question that I get almost in every presentation is, why do you have to wear your head cover in America? You don't have to. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. The, first time, the first time I heard that, I laughed. I'm like, what makes you think that I have to? Why, you know, being in America is very empowering because of the religious freedom that people have. What makes you think that in America I have to, you know, wear a head cover? It's my choice. I choose to wear it because it empowers me. And it brings my femininity across and it makes me share more comfortably my thoughts and aspirations without any distraction. That's how my head cover empowers me. But people haven't heard this perspective. You know, when I started blogging, my first blog was called As a Muslimah. A Muslimah is a female woman in, in Arabic. And in that blog, I just talked about my perspective as a woman living in America. How is that Muslim woman perspective being um, received? You know, what can people, can can we start this conversation about our different perspectives as as multicultural women? So that is one of the questions that I always get. And, you know, another one is, do you take a shower with the head cover? (laughs) 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 Very ridiculous. But, you know, at home, we do not wear our head cover. In front of close family, we do not wear it. (laughs) So small things that people might think are silly questions, but these are extremely important questions to ask. That's right. I think, you know, the curiosity... um, can go very deep or, you know, I think sometimes it's important to talk about, um, you know, just the everyday things. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to talk about the meaning behind that head cover. What, what, tell me the, the, why is it empowering to you? Well, first of all, I want to make sure that people understand that it's empowering when women choose it. Okay. And it's, it's, it's oppressive when it's forced. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I am for uh, the choice of women to, to wear whatever they want, basically. And um, for me, it's empowering uh, because I'm, people can, are more able to focus on what I have to say. What I have to give, my contribution to the community is one of thoughts and dreams and ambitions. It's not one that is um, sticking to a specific shape or a specific um, um, appearance. So I would, it's very empowering for me. And um, that is the meaning behind it. But ultimately, I choose to wear it because it's an act of love. It's an act of dedication. Uh, We see nuns uh, covering their head as well. But we're not as critical about why they do this, but it's an act of love. And up until recently, whether in the Middle East or probably 60 years ago in America, a lot of women consider to be um, conservative uh, when they're going to church. They actually uh, cover their hair as a sign of modesty from all faiths, not just from the Muslim Christians and Jews. And up until now, even Jews believe in that as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a sign of um, dedication and it's empowering, um, and um, 
it, it, it just reflects um, personal conviction. And, and would you say, could it be just um, a tradition as well? There isn't. So, so in some countries, I would say that people wear it as a tradition. Uh, but religiously, those who embrace it in terms of a religious practice, that that isn't that wouldn't be a tradition um, per se. Okay. Um, so the difference between a traditional, you know, uh, aspect and a religious, you know, if they conflict, the religious would go over, you know, would take over the would overtake the cultural one. Yes. But for for women. For it to have that specific meaning, it's a religious practice. Okay. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about the Islamic Resource Group, uh, the work that you're doing with them. You're listening to Women to Watch. We'll be right back. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbear.com to learn more. That's fhbair.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. My guest this evening is Hanadi Shahabadeen, and Hanadi is an international award-winning speaker, a consultant on diversity and inclusion, and a media expert. And uh, she's really being very courageous in speaking out on the topic of changing Americans' perceptions of Muslims and Islam. And uh, there's an organization out there, the Islamic Resource Group, uh, which you're advising, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about this group and, and what their goals are. What do they do? So this is one of the um, thriving organizations here in Minnesota, and um, I think this, this year they started sending out speakers throughout the country as well in conferences. But the main objective of this organization is to provide Muslim speakers for schools, community centers, churches, or whoever asks, uh, for uh, a speaker talking about Islam and Muslims. It's a great, great resource for our community here. It's an asset for our community, and it's bridging the divide and being the peacemaker in our uh, community. You know, you've done a, uh, quite a bit of, of traveling and going uh, into schools and communities uh, to talk to people, and I was curious if you have found that your um you're welcomed differently in the different places uh, around the country and outside the U.S. that you've traveled in? Uh, well, I have to say the avenues that invite me um, mostly have audiences that are educated. I'm sure some of them have prejudice, but the way even they ask their questions uh, comes across very respectful from a 
from a point of view of somebody that wants to know. Now, the events that happen in public places like community centers or, um, you know, the people, you know, places where people have access to without a specific channel or organization, um, we, we, I would have one or two people in the audience that are there to make a point, that are there to um, kind of twist the conversation into something specific, maybe influence some of the people listening and connecting or identifying with what I'm saying. And I always try and give those people um, space to talk because I believe that they come from uh, a good place and from a place where there is some kind of lack of education. And I try my best, as long as it's not disrupting uh, the, 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 the talk, to really try to come to a common point. Because um, I believe these, this is extremely important. These are the conversations that matter the most. And in most, most of the time, these people are asking questions, regardless of the attitude, they're asking questions that are on people's minds. But some of them would be too shy to ask it. So, so I give them the space, try to make it as respectful as possible, and wouldn't take offense in anything or the or even the attitude that that the question is being asked. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you ever uh, are you ever afraid of of putting yourself out there in such a public way? I do, I do so, I do, and you know, being a mother of three kids, sometimes it's hard to be that brave, um, but I have to do it. I have to do it for my kids. I have to do it. I, when I was watching the television and didn't see a, an accurate representation of Muslims, I, you know, I dedicated myself to be that person mm-hmm. for other people, for other kids, for other mothers. I, I want to be that role model for other kids. I know I'm being a role model for my daughter. I know I'm doing this so that she doesn't have to. But at the end of the day, she looks up to me and she says, I want to be a public speaker. <laughs> I mean, that surprises me. Mm. But at the same time, it gives me comfort that if she grows up to be a confident Muslim, if she chooses to be a confident Muslim, then all the effort that I've done is just so worthwhile. Mm. How how was your adjusting to life in Minnesota? And is there a large population of Muslims there? Well, Minnesota is a little um, tough to survive. It's and you know we're not talking about just the cold and weather and the snow, but people are very private. So there is the Minnesota nice that people are always nice to you, but you're never invited to their homes. So it was hard for me to integrate in the, in the community. And my community now is not just the Muslim community, but it's a really big, diverse uh, community that I connect with on a daily basis, whether through social media or in person. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard. The first three years were really hard for me because I was mostly frustrated. But the minute I started communicating, the minute I started volunteering and presenting and speaking and connecting with people, and I have to say, Sue, that the strength that I have is mostly from the people that send me those private messages or emails or comment on a post and say, we're with you, we're just supporting you, keep speaking and we'll keep listening. Mm. These are the people that I draw strength from and power to continue doing the work I'm doing. Would you like to see more members of your own community speaking out as you are? 
I would love to provide um, training for people who want to do this. I, I would love to see more people choosing to do what I'm doing because I chose it. I, 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 I do not believe that all Muslims should be busy doing this because Muslims have their own lives and they have the right, just like any other American citizen, to lead a normal life without having to justify themselves, mm. without having to justify their choice of clothing or anything else. So I would love to empower those who choose, those who want to do the work I'm doing, to do it better and do it at a bigger scale as well. Can you tell me about conversations that you have with your uh, Muslim family members and friends and and communities talking about, you know, uh, the violence within the Muslim community? And I'm sure you, like everyone else, are questioning why is it happening? Where does it come from? Tell me about those conversations and and not not only you know it's a big question to ask why it why it happens um, because it happens across all uh, religion religions and cultures. But in our media today, as you know, that is at the forefront, and so uh, you're very understanding of the fear. But what are you talking about amongst yourselves uh, uh, when you're trying to figure it out? What is the cause and, and how can it be changed? Well, one of the things that I believe is a strong factor is the media narrative. When Muslims only appear on television when there is a bad news, what are we really saying about a whole community? We're saying that all Muslims are... Uh, you know, terrorists. So that will create a feeling of frustration and anger. And ultimately, the whole community will be marginalized. Now, why this is leading into extremism is that, you know, personally, as a practicing Muslim, when, in, when there is an injustice that is being done upon me, I'm uh, required by my religions to be patient, to engage in a conversation, and to know that this has happened for a reason and I need to be at peace with it. So I draw more peace and connection with God by, that, by those injustices. Now, the, the extremist narrative is actually the opposite. The extremist narrative is you'll never be accepted as a Muslim in the West. You will not belong at any point in a country other than a Muslim country or than an Islamic country what they say is the Islamic country. So if you see the two narratives, the media narrative and the extremist narrative, actually intersect. Mm. They actually align. So when the media narrative confirms that all Muslims are extremists or we only see Muslims as, as extremists, people will feel that they don't belong. And if they're not committed to their religion, if they do not go to the mosque and hear those comforting thoughts and those, um, you know, uh, preaching on being patient and facing injustices with kindness, with acts of kindness, then people will feel marginalized and eventually get on the Internet and, you know, join the group, join a group, an extremist group that they might um, think will, you know, um, do them justice Mm. or, or, or force them into, um, an, an, you know, a chain of action that is un-Islamic and inhumane at the same time. So, 
this, you know, we've got to start changing the narrative in the media because ultimately this will help us overcome the extremist um, narrative as well. You know, there's such irony in, in what you said, Hanadi, because, you know, your faith um, teaches you to be peaceful. And uh, I have a quote here. You said, any close encounter with the Prophet Muhammad would create understanding about what a peaceful person he truly was. Talk about yeah. talk um, about him. Um, talking about Prophet Muhammad, if you're upon him, is like talking about somebody that I can almost see, even though he lived, you know, 1,400 years ago or or so. So because he has been documented in everything that he has done and or even said, I can draw a picture, a very vivid picture of who he was as a person. And every single Muslim, um, you know, take inspiration in his life and study his actions and uh, moral behavior throughout his fight and throughout his um, lifetime. He is um, uh, um, somebody that I, of course, long to be a drop in the ocean of who he was um, as a merciful human being in words described in the Quran as uh, mercy to mankind. So not just um, for us as Muslims, but also as, um, you know, as a nation as well. Mm. We're going to take another quick break, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk about your um, pursuit of uh, international leadership at uh, the University of St. Thomas. You're listening to Women to Watch. We'll be right back. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Sue Rocco here with Women to Watch on Talk Radio, 1210 WPHT, and I'm speaking with Hanadi Shahabuddin, and Hanadi is a international award-winning speaker, uh, consultant on diversity and inclusion, which we should talk about that as well, the work that you do with uh, with companies. And um, I, I guess for the listeners, we really should talk about what the format of your speeches are when you go out to speak. You know, what is the format and and what is the goal? So basically, under the diversity and inclusion, I come into companies mostly as a keynote speaker, either in a conference or annual event, or as a trainer and consultant, uh, addressing some of these biases that uh, employees might have, and also to nurture a global mindset because, you know, quarter of the world population is Muslims or identify as Muslims. So understanding, you know, the world around us, especially with, the, with uh, you know, social media and how we're becoming a lot more connected as a as world, you know, the, the whole world together, um, 
people, you know, companies might want to address uh, the perspective of being a Muslim woman, but truly uh, the corporate companies that care about in making their environment a totally inclusive one and uh, nurturing a global employee as opposed to an individual. Um, and, you know, just starting the conversation, understanding what it is to be a Muslim woman, hearing those uh, courageous conversations. One of the things that you've said, Hanadi, is that, um, you know, when you, this is a big, uh, a big issue, and um, you felt that the best anecdote was really to just be open and try to um, connect with one person at a time. Does it ever, I'm sure it does, this is probably a silly question, does it ever feel overwhelming, the task at hand? Well, you know, I, I take it one conversation at a time, and my faith gives me a lot of peace and power to keep doing what I'm doing. And if, if it wasn't for that, I would definitely feel frustrated, and I do at a lot of points. Sometimes, you know, I wake up and I, and I just want to be a regular American leading a normal life. <laughs> but, I, you know, it, it is overwhelming, but it, it gives me gives me happiness, satisfaction, and, and I'm very passionate about my work. So I think it's, it's, um, it's a calling for me. And tell me about, you're, you're married, you, your husband, what, uh, what does he think about the work that you do? He's very supportive. I would never be able to travel and do the work that I'm doing if, he, if it wasn't for him. He is my rock and my love. And um, we do this together, and he knows how rewarding it is for him to see me as successful as I am. Um, I'm sure he worries about you. He does. He does. But he also knows that I'm a strong woman. So <laughs> he kind of <laughs> he worries, but he also trusts that I'll just be able to pull this off. <laughs> I have no doubt. I have no doubt. You're, you're doing great work. You really are. And... Um, you Thank know, there, you. there's only so much you can do in a day. You, you know, we all do a little bit every day and hope that it makes a difference. Um, but more importantly, I, I, I think when we're doing work that we feel is our calling, it's what we were meant to do, um, it makes it that much easier. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I understand that you're um, continuing your education and you're pursuing an international leadership degree at the University of St. Thomas. What do you hope to do with that? Well, when I started the, the, that specific degree, I wanted to be more connected because I was just, you know, my kids started preschool and I wanted more professional network to connect with. And I thought education is the best place to start as, as would any other Muslim think. I mean, I, I would hope they would think so, but uh, basically I, I took on the International Leadership Program and it has given me a platform to an education that I'm really lucky to have at this point. Uh, but with all the work that I'm doing, sometimes I feel a little too torn between um, finishing this as soon as possible or just taking a break and doing more of what I'm doing. Mm. Um, I think it, it's a very... Um, hard way to balance both lives being a mom you know a student and and a public speaker yes but 
I, I also I also think that as women, we have the power to balance that. We do. We're the we're the queen of multitasking. <laughs> Queens, I should say. Um, listen, real quickly, if, if someone's listening and wants to be in touch with you to have you come and speak to their community, where can they find you? Um, my website is uh, hanadispeaksout.com, H-A-N-A-D-I, speaksout.com. Um, you can go through the website and there is a speaker submission form uh, that they can um, reach out to me. Um, okay. And, you know, they can add me on LinkedIn and Facebook, and I'm always very easy reach. Okay. And we'll be sharing your information as well, Hanadi. I thank you so much um, for taking the time to share your story with us today. I wish you continued thank you success. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank, thank you. you. Stay in touch. Bye. We'll- Women to watch. Women to watch. Now, Sue Rocco. Thank you for being with us. You're listening to Women to Watch on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. And I now have the pleasure of my weekly Health Watch contributor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, with me in the studio. And she's going to be talking to us about how to be prepared for a doctor's visit and what questions might be asked. Thanks, Sue. As a specialist, patients come to me with common disorders. Women in particular might have abdominal pain. Be prepared to tell me, when did it start? What were you doing? Has it ever happened before? Is there anything that makes it better or worse? Does it relate to your cycle? Does it wake you from a sound sleep? And then I have to decide whether it's GI in origin, could it be urinary tract, or even gynecologic? It is so important to track your cycle. Is it regular? When was your last one? When was your last gynae appointment? Tell me about tell me about medications that we need to be prepared um, to talk about because I know there's a lot of people self-medicating today. Yes, well, it's a really good idea if you're taking any medications to bring a list with the exact dosages, over-the-counter meds. You're so right; can make a huge difference. Aspirin and Motrin-like meds seem so innocent, but they can really cause damage to your stomach lining, including ulcers and major GI bleeds. Know exactly what medications to which you might be allergic. If you've ever had abdominal surgery. Know your family history. Has anybody else in your family had similar symptoms? Maybe this is celiac or lactose intolerance or inflammatory bowel disease. Be honest with your social history. Have you ever smoked? If you have constipation now, maybe it's because you stopped smoking two months ago. Remember to tell the doctor that. How much alcohol do you consume? Do you use recreational drugs? If you traveled recently, remember where you went and tell us if you had the proper immunizations. And lastly, Be prepared to give the exact name and phone number of your primary care doctor, your gynecologist, or any other doctors who would want the information from our visit. Bring reports of blood studies, former surgeries, or endoscopy reports. And when we ask for x-rays, not just the report, but get the actual images or pictures of the x-rays on a disc and bring that. It can make a huge difference. Thank you so much. It's great advice as always, Dr. Ritchie. We look forward to having you next week. Apple a day. Christine Flowers is up next. Have a great week, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the real story behind the title here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.